We're so thankful, O oh God, because your spirit is here. Um, the Bible says that the word of God is the bread of life. So, Father, we submit ourselves to receive bread from your table today. The living water, the one that um, will cause us not to thirst anymore, we, we submit ourselves to drink the living water this morning. We ask that the Spirit of God will inspire us today. We ask that He will open our eyes to see, behold wondrous things out of your Word. We ask that you open our ears to hear the Word of Truth, that we may put the Word of God in the right perspective this morning. Father, I submit myself, myself to you. I step into your grace and faith. Your grace that makes preaching easy. And hearing the word of God is sweet delight. I do not think anything of myself. But I lean on the everlasting arms this morning. Uh, let your people be blessed today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Well, I've titled the message this morning, The Lucifer Effect. The Lucifer Effect. And I would like to take credit for this, um, this term. But um, it's a term that's been, that was coined by a man called uh, Philip Zimbardo, who is a psychologist and professor at Stanford. And he did a series of studies on understanding how good people become bad. Now, of course, he drew this phrase from the story of Lucifer in the Bible. You know, the word Lucifer actually means the light bearer the bearer of light lucifer the bible teaches was the anointed cherub that covered he walked in the very presence of a holy and a pure god he had great responsibility but yet the same lucifer became the origin of evil and perpetrated and still perpetuates the greatest evil in the universe. So in this study by um, Dr. Philip or Dr. Zimbardo, he looks at how institutions shape individual behavior and how individuals shape institutions. Or I can say is a study of understanding how good people turn evil or perform evil acts. And when we talk about evil, we talk about somebody who knows better but does worse. Individuals who exercise power to intentionally harm, that is psychologically, or hurt others physically, or destroy mortally or spiritually. How do good people turn bad? How do good people begin to act in an evil way? You know, I asked myself this question this week. I mean, how does a man who led the integrity group that opposed the alleged corrupt Speaker of the House now allegedly gets caught with receiving bribes to the tune of $620,000? How do we understand the dynamics of such transformations of human character? Now, see, the reason why I'm looking at this today is because your own time is coming. Your reputation for excellence and integrity of character is going to bring you before kings. The favor of God is going to usher you into the palace of Pharaoh. 
The favor of God is going to move you from the backsides of the desert, in the case of Moses, and bring you in the very presence to make the difference that you have been praying about. Now, when you get there, I want to make sure that naivete doesn't cause you to stumble. Don't be naive to think that the same things we read about in the papers can never happen to you. You know, the Bible in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, Let him who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So one of the, one of the signs that you are about to fall is when you are thinking in yourself that you are standing. Are you with me this morning? He says, let, let the person who thinks he's all that, let the person who thinks he's beyond reproach, let the person who thinks he is beyond temptation, be careful, take heed, lest he falls. Jesus made the same statement in Matthew 26, 41. He said to his disciples, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So that means it takes more than a willing spirit to stand in the day of adversity. How many of you are here this morning? And that's why I want to look at this. Because you know, as I said a few weeks ago, whenever people pray, God always sends a man. Alright? Whenever people pray, God always sends somebody. And as we taught last week, you are the person. That God is sending. Are you with me? Into your world of influence. So as we, as the way is made, as the doors of opportunity are open to us, let us watch and pray, lest we enter into the same temptation. So this message is the watch part of uh, the statement the Lord made there in Matthew 26. He said, watch and pray. So I, I'm examining the watch part, the, the be aware part of the Lord's admonition, understanding the factors that influence human behavior, understanding the factors that influence the human behavior. You know, the first factor is the most common one, which everybody is familiar with. And that is what Dr. Zimbardo calls the dispositional factor. Everyone say dispositional factor. This is the bad apple factor. Alright? This is the little leaven leaven in the whole lump factor. People with inherent character defects and sadistic personalities getting into positions that just amplifies what was always there. You know, the guy that used to be a 419 guy and, and you knew how he operated. And he has, you know, this elaborate, you know, car dealership. And everybody knows. And we, you know, we whisper, oh, okay, we know how he got his money. And now all of a sudden, we see him in the House of Parliament. Alright? So that is the dispositional factor. The bad apple syndrome. Personalities who get into politics... Purely to line their pockets. People who wait to be awarded contracts who have no intention of carrying out the work. You know, I remember a few years ago, I think it was a couple of years back now, where uh, one of my, um, my brother-in-law invited me to, um, to a, uh, a get-together. You know, and we had just come back from the UK at the time. 
and um, at the get together we met some chap who had been here for about 10 years he he used to be based in the uk and we're just asking i was asking him about business and you know he said he does contracts and stuff and he said one friend of his was just telling us you know i just wanted to know how this terrain operated you know so he said a friend of his just hit it big i said oh what happened he said well because i awarded this contract it's a huge contract about a billion naira or something um at the time and i said oh great that's wonderful so i said so um so what is the what is the project about and he burst out laughing he said what am i asking about i said well what is the project he said you don't understand we all queue up to get the contract once we've got the contract that's our turn we hit it once we get the money that's it that's the end i thought okay so that's the dispositional factor isn't it the bad apple who has no intention of doing good these are bad apples who are lying in wait deceiving the public by their charm and their seeming purity to be put in positions where they fully intend to defraud this is the factor we are familiar with so as christians when we think about the dispositional factor our, our, our solution is well let us get christians into power let us get christians into high office people of faith people with proven integrity but then if that is all that was needed why hasn't our country been transformed already with the millions of christians in our churches and in our society why isn't the difference being seen surely we're not suggesting that those millions are not real christians our churches are not teaching about morality or integrity i hope we're not suggesting that because there are a lot of great churches in our nation there are a lot of great pastors that are teaching the word and teaching about integrity and teaching about morality now what philip zimbardo proposed was that there are two other factors as to why good people perform evil acts and that's what i want you to be aware of this morning the second factor he brings out is something called the situational factor everyone say the situational factor good men and women corrupted by the behavioral context by powerful situational forces some of which they are not even aware of rather than the bad apple this is the bad barrel syndrome you know the apples in the barrel some are bad but the bad barrel is affecting the apples everyone said the bad barrel is affecting the apples you know people always behave in a situation you know you might think you know the person sitting next to you but how many of you know you only know how they are behaving in church right now all right you don't know how people behave in every situation. Yeah? You are seeing them in a particular slice of life. And what he was bringing out with the behavioral context is situations have a great power to influence. Maybe these are good people who are influenced by a bad context. Now, if that is true, then it means that for you and I knowing our hearts is not enough of a safeguard oh i know the kind of person i am if this is true it means that knowing our hearts is not enough of a safeguard you need to know your context and you need to make sure you don't underestimate 
power of the context in influencing your behavior. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, the Bible says, Abstain from every form of evil. The King James says, Flee all appearances of evil. And the reason why it says flee is because it's saying like run, flee means to run away as in terror. It's not it's saying don't, ad, don't adopt the posture that, oh, I know the kind of person I am, I can handle it. Alright? It says no, no, no don't, don't adopt that mentality. Because there is something about the context that can affect your behavior. First uh, Corinthians 5.33 says don't be deceived. Evil, evil communication corrupts good morals or good manners. The New King James says evil company corrupts good habits. So it's saying don't even hang around evil because when you are hanging around evil, what's going to happen is that the, the longer you hang around it, the more your habits will be influenced. So there is a situational factor that you and I need to be aware of. Always be aware of the context in which you are placing yourself. Eve placed herself next to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And began to look at it. And we all know the rest of the story, don't we? And then finally, there is something he calls the systemic factor. Everyone say the systemic factor. This is broader extrinsic influences. Legal, political, strategic, economic. The general context created... And maintained by higher authorities. This is the bad barrel makers. Everyone said the bad barrel makers. So you've got the bad apple. You've got the bad barrel. And then you've got the bad barrel makers. The people that are churning out the right infrastructure that will support evil. Everybody here this morning. And we are in all those contexts which we all need to be aware of. It's a little bit like a book that some of us read many years ago. You know, anyone ever read the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Yeah, the same guy who, you know, on one aspect, he was Dr. Jekyll, who was the nice person, apparently good, but on the other side, he was Mr. Hyde, the, the opposite of what he, he was before that. One person who is vastly different in moral character from one situation to the next. So this story was about how do people, you know, in one situation they are moral and righteous, but then in another situation um, will demonstrate behavior that is evil. Now we need to understand that. You know, there's a study that was carried out in 1963. Very interesting study. By um, a professor... Uh, I believe he was in Harvard or Stanford, one of these places. But he, he was Jewish. And this was just after the Second World War. And he wanted to make sure that the kind of things that happened in the Second World War will never happen again. So he asked this question. He said to people, you know, to a thousand ordinary people. He said, would you electrocute a stranger if... Say Hitler asked you to do so. Would you electrocute somebody? And, and if someone came to you and said, you know, would you electrocute an innocent man just because somebody asks you to do so? How many of you would do that? Nobody, right? 
Now, of course, he asked people and everyone said, no, no, no. Of course, I mean, we can't do such a thing. So he decided that he was going to conduct an experiment. He decided he was going to conduct an experiment with a thousand people. A thousand people from, you know, from the populace. Now he did this in, in Stanford, but these were not students. These were just normal people. Workers, mothers, you know, bricklayers, etc. A thousand people. 500 men and 500 women. So what he did was he put an ad in the paper. And he said, we are conducting a study of memory. Yeah, how to help people remember stuff. A study about memory. And he said, if you submit yourself to this experiment, we will pay you $4 uh, for doing this experiment. Now, this was in 1963. $4 was, you know, a decent amount at the time. So he said to people, they all came to the laboratory. And he said, we want to help people improve their memory. We know that if you reward the right behavior, people will learn. But we're not sure what will happen if you punish people for the wrong behavior to see um, if that will help them learn as well. So we want to we want to try that aspect of we, we, it's a hypothesis we haven't proven yet. Yeah, following me so far. Now, so the the procedure was this: the participant was paired up with another person. And they drew lots to decide who was going to be the teacher and who was going to be the learner. Okay, so the teacher is the one that is penalizing if the learner gets things wrong. Alright, I want you to follow me on this. Now, what the participants didn't know was that they had rigged the lot so that they would always be the teacher. And the learner was actually one of his assistants, but they didn't know that. All they knew was... You know, I am the teacher and this person is the learner. Now, this is what the experiment was about. They took the learner into a room, a locked room, and they had electrodes attached to the learner. Okay? And the teacher with a, with a researcher would go into another room. And in this other room, there was an electric shock generator with a dial on it. Okay, so basically as you turn the dial, it will increase the, the quantity of electricity that was being passed into the body of the learner. Are you here this morning? And it started from 15 volts. 15 volts is not a, you know, it's not a lot. All the way to 450 volts. Now on this dial, when you get to 300 volts, it says danger, XXX. And then on 450 it says XXXX. Yeah? So, so the teacher, who was an individual like you and I, gotten from the... Uh, oh, someone, I just heard someone say, not me. Oh. Gotten from society, was standing next to this guy in a brown robe, or in a gray robe, who was like the researcher. All right? And so this was the way the experiment was going to work. So they gave the learner certain cards to memorize. So imagine two pairs of words like uh, shoe and feet, yeah, um, hat, head, um, driver, car. So they said, memorize all these words, and we're going to ask you questions. So the instruction to the teacher was that if he gets it right, tick a box, but if he gets it wrong, apply a little electric surge. Yeah, you know, because we're trying to, to help his memory. 
No, no, no. I, I need you to get this. All right? So, when the experiment started, of course, the learner was giving wrong answers all the time because, you know, he was, he was actually the assistant of the professor. All right? So, this, um, so the, um, the teacher was increasing the electric surges. So, the experiment was to see how many people will go to 450 volts. Yeah, good experiment, right? So before this guy, Milgram, conducted this experiment, he got the top psychiatrists in the land and asked them the question, what percentage of the population do you think will apply, will go all the way to 450 volts just because somebody told them to do it? And all the psychiatrists said, you know, I mean, that, can, I mean, that would not happen because, you know, um, only bad people do bad things. Only bad people do bad things. So they said, we believe that only 1% of the population will, uh, will ever subject themselves to that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, and, and we have the same mentality. We do what the psychiatrists suggest. We overestimate the disposition of the person and we underestimate the power of the situation. Everyone said the power of the situation. Okay, so this is what actually happened. This is what actually happened. You know, as these guys began, you know, they would begin by applying 15 volts. Now the dial had 30, I mean, they had like 30, because it was 15 volts, and they had like all the way to 450. So there were 30 turns of the dial. All right? So initially everything was okay. You get it wrong, 15, 30, 45. And then they can see on the dial, by the time they got to 285, they would hear from the other room, the person saying, man, this thing is hurting. This thing is hurting. Okay, you guys should stop this now. This thing is hurting. And then the, the guy, the person that is applying the, the individual, would say to the, um, the guy in the lab coat, that I think that guy is really hurting. What do you think? I mean, who's going to take responsibility if the guy dies? And the lab coat guy says, don't worry, we will take the responsibility. And then he turns it up to 300. By the time he gets to 300, the guy in the room is screaming. Now, the guy in the lab coat has been given some standard responses. One response is, please continue. Another response is, the experiment requires you to continue. Another response, it is absolutely essential that you continue. The fourth response, you have no other choice but to continue. Don't you understand? You signed a contract. You are not going to get the $4 until you finish the experiment. Now, those were the standard responses the guy in the lab coat was meant to give. Now, these are the results of the experiment. A thousand people. Now, first of all, nobody got into the room and said, you know what, electric shock to another individual I'm not doing. Yeah, nobody did that. Because they were told the big lie. What was the lie? We are trying to improve somebody's memory. All right? Now, nobody stopped when they got to 285 volts. So everyone went to at least 300 volts. Now, at 300 volts, a few of them stopped. At 375 volts, the, 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 the person in the room 
they had a big thought. Like the, the learner, right? Because by 285, he's screaming. By 300, the guy that's applying the pressure had a big boom. And he would say, I, I, I think that guy is in trouble. But this is where the guy in the lab coat says, you have a contract, you know? So, so the person that is applying the pressure doesn't feel that he has a way out, even though he does. So in his mind, because between 375 and 450, there are about three more dials, he feels, well, let me just finish it so I can leave quickly. So what they found was 66% of everybody that was tested went to 450 volts. 66%. Now, these were not evil people. But they were unaware of the situational forces that were acting against them. So the conclusion of the study was that ordinary people are likely to follow orders given by an authority figure even to the extent of killing an innocent human being. Obedience to authority is ingrained in us, in us all, all the way from the way we're brought up. Obedience to parents, obedience to authority, obedience to the policeman, obedience to um, your husband, obedience to your government. That sense of obedience is ingrained within us and a lot of times we don't question authority even when authority is leading you in the wrong direction. So as Christians it's very important that we renew our minds and we need to put the word of God in the right perspective. Otherwise the power of situation will get you to do things that you will never believe possible. We need to renew our minds. We need to put the word in the right perspective. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Let me just look at a few things very quickly. And then I'll, I'll just bring out a few lessons that I think this Milgram study teaches us. As individuals, teaches us as righteous people, teaches us as Christians. We need to watch and pray. Look at Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1. It's an amazing thing how, you know, I, I, there was this story about um, this religious sect. And it was like a closed sect. So the members of the the religious sect um, didn't have interactions with society. So, you know, whenever you joined the sect, you would move into, um, you know, um, private, you know, private estates. You have your homes, you have your schools, that kind of thing. And there was a situation here where this woman's husband was abusing their daughter, sexually abusing the, abusing the daughter. And initially she didn't say anything about it. But after a while, she couldn't stand it anymore. So she went to the elders of the sect. It was a closed sect. She went to the elders and reported what was going on. So the elders said to her that, well, are you sure you have been a good enough wife to your husband? Because if you were a good enough wife, this kind of thing will not happen. Okay? That was the first counsel. So she went back home and tried to be a good enough wife. And then... She went back to the elders again. And the elders said, um, you need to pray about it. Okay? And the, the counsel was, go pray about it. Um, you know, because you need to honor your husband, etc. You know? So she went, she prayed about it, and it continued. She went back to the elders again, and he said, you know, I've prayed about it. I've tried to be a good wife. The same thing is going on. 
and they said, well, pray about it some more. Now, um, very soon afterwards, the girl that was being abused found, was found in her room. She had hung herself and she died. All right? Now, I know in, within us, there is a, we, we need to interpret the word correctly. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. We need to put things in the right perspective. Ephesians 6, verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents. What? In the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise. That it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the what? In the training and admonition of the Lord. It's very important to obey your parents. Um, it's very important to honor your father and mother. Um, that is the first commandment with the promise so that you may live long in the earth. But you know, it says obey your parents in the Lord, right? So there's the inherent assumption that your parents are going to bring you up in the way of the Lord. Do you know that there are parents that have sex with their children? It's abominable, but are, it has been known to happen. There are parents that teach their children to, to hit their mothers, to put their mothers in their place. Yeah? Do you know that that happens? Well, um, if a child says, well, I'm meant to obey my parents. No, no, no. You obey your parents in the Lord. Yeah? If your parents are leading you in the, in the way that is illegal, in the way that's immoral, you do not obey that. Are you with me? We need to renew our minds to the truth. Obey your parents in the Lord has a context to it. It has a context to it. You're a child of God. The word of God teaches you the way that is right and the way that is evil. And that is what you obey. Number two, in Ephesians chapter 5. The, 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 the chapter before that. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. We talk about this a lot in our church. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. As to whom? Oh, come on. Let us respond this morning. It says, wives, submit to your own husband. As to what? The Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in what? All things. Everyone say all things. The wives should be subject to Christ in all things, but the example is the way Christ is subject, uh, the church is subject to Christ, isn't it? There's a, there's a context to that. God hasn't called you to a man who's going to be beating your brains out. Are, are you with me? Yeah? You, you don't submit to that. You don't submit to that. That is abuse. That is abuse. If somebody quotes that verse to you, he's not quoting it in the right context. All you need to do is read the rest of the verse. Uh, the rest of the chapter, the Bible says that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Husbands should nourish and cherish their wives. Are you with me? So there is a context to submission. There is a context to love. God hasn't called you to abuse. You don't submit to that. You resist that. You speak against that. That is not the covenant that God has called you to. Look at another passage. Oh, look at Romans 13. You know, our time is coming as members of this church, as Christians, where opportunities will be open to us to speak truth. Opportunities will be open to us to take our place in our nation, to be part of the transformation that is happening in this nation. But it's important that you understand that you are within three contexts. You are in a dispositional context, which really the solution is get born again and, and, and live your life for Christ. But there's a strong situational and systemic context in which we operate 
and we need to understand and not underestimate the power of that in the way we behave and the way we act. Look at Romans 13, verse 1. This speaks about respect for authority. It says, let every soul be what? Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from whom? From God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on whom? Themselves. For rulers are not what? A terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be... Everyone say, therefore. You know, somebody once taught me that whenever you say therefore, find out what is therefore. Alright? You don't start a statement with therefore. It says, because of what I've just said, therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake, for because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes, to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So the reason why we subject ourselves to authority of government in all things is because they are God's agents for good and not for evil. They are God's agent for good and not for evil. But if the very authority is asking for a bribe, if the very authority is, re- is rewarding evil instead of good, resist that authority. Speak against that government. It might be local, it might be state, it might be federal. If the authority is rewarding evil instead of good, you need to speak against it. You know, in the first century, there are Christians that went to the, to the, um, you know, to the den of lions. Because Nero just said all the Christians should come, obey your authority. And they all came. And they fed them to lions. Your government, whatever it is, it might be school, it might be in your office. Your government is an authority for good and not evil. By the time they start leading you in the path of evil, like happens in so many companies. People come to me and say, Pastor, this is what they are telling me to do. But you know, I'm in that job. I'm in that that context. You need to resist it. You need to speak against it. You need to stand your ground. And let the chips fall where they will. Because the Lord will use that path to bring you to a place of prominence. You know, I believe that the lessons that we can learn from Milgram's study. Ten simple lessons about how to create evil in good people. I need to learn those lessons so we don't get seduced by them. Number one is the big lie. The only reason why these people allowed themselves to be doing that was because they thought they were doing something for good. Alright? The big lie. You know, in, in South Africa a few months ago, I think it was just a few months ago, it might be up to a year now, there was this article where the government was trying to institute a, a, um, a policy for the sake of national security. They wanted to... Um, They want to put a stop to the amount of information that was available in the public domain for the sake of national security. 
and a lot of um, uh, journalists spoke up against it. And it's like, you know, you're, you're trying to keep the information for yourself, so we don't know what's going on. Yeah? That is the big lie. National, that's a good big lie. National security. We're doing it for your own good. So you don't question the actions or the behaviors that happen afterwards. That's number one. The ideology. Be careful of what ideology you are buying into. Make sure it's truth. Number two, the small first step. Everyone said the small first step. 15 volts is not a lot. If you touch 15 volts, it's not. They always start with the small first step. You know, in the office, they'll come to you. Ah, just sign here. A little thing. They don't start with the big one. Ah, you know, just sign. The, the numbers don't quite add up. Yeah, just 30,000 naira. But just sign here. Sign over it. Because we can't quite make up the numbers. And you sign. It always starts with the small first step. That's number two. Number three is successive increase in small actions. Notice they went from 15 volts to 450. The increases were not from 15 to 100. It was 15, 45, 60. The successive, you know, I, I can imagine Enron on a Friday night. Anyone remember Enron? Yeah? Well, I thought Anderson. On a Friday night. You know, just before you go out for drinks, they come and say, oh, you know, accountant, the numbers don't add up, just sign here. You sign. Hey, let's go, let's go for drinks. Next week, bigger numbers. By the end of the year, you are cooking the books and you are doing things that a year before, you would not imagine yourself doing. You know, a man of God once said that you can never make a U-turn when your car is going at 100 miles per hour. I mean, if you're going at 100 miles per hour and you need to make a U-turn, you can't make it safely, can you? What is the first thing you must do if you want to make a U-turn? You slow down. You slow down. You slow it down. Alright? So that is the successive compromise. A little compromise here, a little compromise there. Ah, we need to get this through. Okay, let's do this. A little, and it increases in small successive steps. You think you can't do evil? Then don't allow the small successive steps to take hold. Are you with me? Eve never thought she was going to eat that fruit. Never. Because she knew the law. She knew God had said, don't do it. But she located herself there. She began to engage about it. She began to look at it and imagine. And then she did something she never expected herself to do. The successive small steps. Number four, seemingly just authority in charge. You know, you have somebody in a... All you had was a guy in a brown coat. I mean, they didn't know, she didn't know who the guy was. He wasn't in a white coat, so he wasn't like a doctor. And it was a brown coat, a gray coat. But because it seemed like the authority was in charge, well, the authority said I should do it. So, well, I guess it must be okay. I guess it must be okay to, to be shocking people. Yeah? I guess it must be okay to be signing, I mean, to be reneging on a contract that we have committed ourselves to. It must be okay because the CEO said it's okay. Must be alright. Seemingly just authority in charge. Number five, compassionate leader changes gradually to become authoritative monster. We don't know how to deal with transformation. Because, you know, he was a good guy before. And, we're, you know, hey, we're okay. We're all hanging out. But he becomes an authoritative monster. And we don't know where to draw the line. It's like, well, maybe he's going to go back to good. Yeah? Number six, rules that are vague and changing. Whenever rules, you know, whenever rules are clearly stated, you can say this is the rule. But when they are... You know, I wonder why a lot of us, let me say us, we travel to England 
and we behave differently. Have you ever wondered why? I mean, I know for myself, you know, I'm one of you, for myself, I know I drive differently in the UK. I love driving. I love fast cars. I drive differently in the UK because I know in the UK, if I should cross a red line, the bus line, I'm getting a fine. If I, if I should, if I should drive beyond, what is the speed limit here? You know, you know, when the laws are vague, yeah, when they are vague, in the UK, it's, it's very clear. And if, and, and, and it's enforced. Alright? It's enforced. If I, if I go beyond, a policeman doesn't have to chase me down. I will get a fine in my house. If I don't pay the fine, I will get points on my license. There are some things you do that you get points and you pay the fine. You don't do that, they are coming for you. Yeah? The laws are clear. But, but you see, we, we like, in this kind of environment where, um, where good people go bad, the, the laws are vague. Subject to interpretation. Number seven, the situation relabels actors and actions. You know, it's always about, oh, we're helping rather than we're hurting. You know, it's like a teacher that in this particular experiment is like, you know, the, the guy that's the teacher is thinking that I'm helping the other person to remember. So I'm increasing it to 450. So at 375, when he's screaming, oh, I'm about to die, it's like, well, I'm actually helping. Yeah? So it's like a teacher helping instead of an aggressor hurting. Number nine, and this is important. Oh, sorry, number eight, we provide social models of compliance. We provide social models of compliance. You know, the everybody is doing it concept. Do you know if you see somebody like yourself, as educated and professional as yourself, doing something, it, on the, it, it gives you that permission. Especially someone you admire. You see them doing something, so you feel, well, it must be okay. Yeah? They provide you, ah, but there's this pastor that does the same thing now. They'll give you a name, but, ah, come on, they do the same. Ah, they, this colleague, you know this guy, right? Yeah, went to, he went to Harvard too. He, he does the same thing now. Yeah? They provide social models of compliance. Number nine, and this is important, they allow verbal dissent, but insist on behavioral compliance. So, for instance, in this study, they, they let the person say, you know, I'm a good person. I don't like hurting people. Oh, that's good. They're a good person. But, but you signed a contract. So, they, are, they will allow you to pray before the board meeting. They will allow you to drive into the, into the car park with your, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, Abraham's blessings are mine. They, they will applaud. The, they will give you time off to go for your prayer meeting. But, but you know, they, they will accept all that. Oh, you're a Christian. Wonderful. Please pray for us, Pastor. They will encourage tithing and giving to good causes. But they will still get you to do the thing they want you to do. Sign here, please. Okay, you're going to church afterwards. Good. Ah, wonderful. Sign. So they applaud verbal dissent. But, but then they, they still ensure compliance. In your behavior. And lastly, they make exiting difficult. They make exiting difficult. You know, that's how a cult operates. They make sure that all your influences are within a controlled environment. So, all the people that you see, you know, there are some guys that work 20, almost like 24 hours a day. So, all your guys that you're hanging around with, your office guys, you know, your, your mind is twisted to think that that is what life is like. Because they make exiting difficult. This is the 
you are there with only one person, the guy in the brown coat. There's nobody else with you. Just both of you. Now imagine if they had opened the door and somebody else came in and saw what you were doing. And said, what do you think you are doing? You wouldn't, we wouldn't have had 66% shocking this man with 450 volts. You know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was um, a Nobel Prize winner, he made this statement. He said, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So he's saying that, you know, these influences affect all of us. So we as Christians need to live our lives with humility. Submitting ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Ever conscious of the effects of the situations we're in. And the context from which we operate. We must always interpret the word of God in the right perspective. It's important that you have somebody outside your immediate environment that can bring objectivity and bring advice into your life. I believe that there's a great transformation happening in our nation. I believe that the church is the hope of our nation. But the Bible says that we should be as wise as serpents. And innocent as doves. Jesus said pray but also watch. Understand the power of situation. Understand the power of the system. To influence your behavior. And with the wisdom of God and a submitted heart. You will resist the enemy when he comes. Because he will come. He will come. And he will always come with subtlety. Let us pray. Father we are so thankful for the word of God. Lord we are so thankful because the word of God brings light. Uh, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. Once again, Father, I thank you for the men in this house. I thank you for the fathers in this house. I thank you for this generation that you are calling to a place of excellence and power. I thank you that you have called us the light of the world and the salt of the earth. I thank you because you have sent us as, as light bearers into all the systems of this world. I thank you, O oh God. Because we will obey your word and will be victorious in everything that you have given us to do. Father, we are so thankful uh, for your grace and your word. And we make a, a commitment to not be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. Father, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name.